Okay, we're on page two. Top of page two. Elimelech chose to take his family to Moab to escape the famine. I'd like you guys to skim through these bullet points. What do we know about Moab? No, not, that's not what do we know about Moab. What would Elimelech and Naomi have known at that time in history about Moab? Would you skim those bullet points? And then we're going to talk about, here again, Elimelech and Naomi come to you for advice. And what are you going to tell them? Okay, take off. So, try to skim through those bullet points and quick talk with each other about that. What is it that they would have known about Moab? And now they're coming to you for advice. You ready to discuss? You already got all the bullet points read? Okay, here I come. I'm Elimelech. I told you the famine's bad. You knew that, but we got to go. What are you going to, and, and, and we're going to Moab. What are you going to tell me? I'm asking you for some advice. Christy, you said something? You better watch out. Why should I watch out? It's dangerous territory. Dangerous territory. Why is it dangerous territory? Ungodly people. Well, they're everywhere, but I got to eat. Well, you better watch out. Better watch out. <laughs> Big man in a white beard. Okay. What else? Christy says, better watch out. Sandy says something. Don't let your son marry Moabite women. Why not? Because the Lord said no. Where did he say no? Well, one of these verses. <laughs> uh, well, it says not to, don't commit sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab. So I think just marrying them. Uh, okay. And Whatever you do, don't let your, your don't son. let your sons grow up to be Moabite <laughs> cowboys. <laughs> okay. All right, Ellen? It says here um, in the last paragraph, it says, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way. So if they're leaving a famine, they don't want to go to the country, to the people that didn't give them food and water on their way into okay. the promised land. And, and related to that one, what does it say concerning Israel's heart toward the Moabites? Doesn't it say... You shall never seek their peace, or does it might? They shall not enter the assembly. Okay, of that the one Lord. says the Moabites can't enter the assembly of the Lord right. for ten generations. Is yes. there one of those that says something about don't seek their peace? Am I uh, remembering something that's not there? Not on the sheet? Okay, what else? Sally? I mean, this is obvious, but um, <coughs> these are. These are their enemies. I mean, they have been for a number of reasons. I mean, why in the world would they go there? Because they have been nothing but a stumbling block and, and their enemies, the Lord has, you know, <laughs> declared this. And so they're just choosing the wrong place to go because they're their they're they're, they're enemies. They have no good, they have not done them good at all. You okay. know, they've been anything but. Okay. All right. That's how you would advise us. Thank you. What else? Who else says something you want to say to Elimelech and Naomi as they're contemplating moving? What I'm saying is, you know, if historically the Moabites didn't give food to them, what makes you think they're going to give you food now? 
Okay. All right. Jeremy. Well, we were we were talking during the break and kind of dawned on us and this is this is not this is not gospel, but I'm just thinking maybe if if Boaz was from that family and that family was considered wealthy, why would they not have been wealthy then? Okay. Why and would who have not been wealthy? Like Ruth, I mean, Elimelech I mean sorry, and Ruth, Naomi. Naomi and Elimelech she might have well might have, have been, been wealthy, wealthy with them. Okay. And so could they have just done as Jacob and send for food to bring back and not move, uh, okay. buy it and bring okay. it. So I don't. So I'm just thinking they're they're playing. You're telling with fire. me I'm being a little short sighted here, right? Like that you maybe haven't factored in all the all the possibilities, uh -huh. and uh -huh. you know it's playing with fire to go to Moab. Okay. Playing with fire to go to Moab. Did you have a thought, Hannah? I think God wanted them to go to Moab, and I think God wanted them to find Ruth. And because without Ruth, we wouldn't have had David, and without David, we wouldn't have had um, Jesus in that line. So I think technically God kind of wanted them to go to Moab, even though people really... They weren't supposed to go normally. Okay. All right. I like it when you uh, throw me curveballs like that. Sam, good job, Hannah. So two things. Paul, we actually did find that passage. It was a few verses later in Deuteronomy 23. Okay. It was 23.6. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. That was 23.6 in Deuteronomy. Because of what they had done yeah. against them back then. Right. And, and the advice I would have would be, to hold fast or cling to the Lord because because I'm noticing we have this whole thing of immorality and various gods that they have to so so my advice would be to, just to not get mixed up with all these other gods and just cling cling to the Lord your God. Okay. All right. Any final words before we keep moving? Excellent insights, everybody. I'd like to give Elimelech every benefit of the doubt. I'm just going to feed my family. I hear what you're saying. We're going to be careful. Fair enough, Elimelech. But what happened once he got to Moab? Sounds like he died fairly soon on the front end, is he there to be careful for his family anymore? No. What happened next? The sons grow to be of age and they take Moabite wives. Did that make Limelech turn over in his grave? Did Naomi cry out to the Lord, why are they doing this? We don't know. I kind of think, I, I, I just don't know. But the question I think I would have asked Elimelech and Naomi is, is why are you placing yourself in a dangerous situation? Why are you not remembering that, if, that what the Lord says is you seek Him, even if you're not been wicked and the famine is because of your own wickedness, you seek Him, He'll take care of you. To Hannah's point, God used their sin, but did God use... Um, David, with the woman with whom he committed adultery to produce Solomon? Yes. Did that mean God wanted? No. God is able to weave even our worst junk together to be according to his plan. 
But that doesn't mean we, like Lot did, park our tent near Sodom, does it? And run risk with your own daughters like Lot did. And here I think he ran the risk with his own sons, Malon and Kilion. Now, I'm going to just give you my two cents. That's all it's probably worth. Maybe not even that with inflation. But I think Naomi was a powerful woman of God. And I think she went because her husband said, we're going. And I think when those Moabite women came into her family, she proceeded to give them the instruction in the ways of Yahweh, so much so that Ruth is absolutely fully devoted to Yahweh and says so. Don't entreat me. I love the King James. Entreat me not to leave you. Your people be my... Your God will be my God, period. May God do thus to, so, to me and more also if anything but death separates me from you, Naomi. That didn't just happen on the walk home to, to uh, Bethlehem. I think that was nurture and mentoring and care. And Naomi, this beautiful godly woman fit, fitting to her name, pouring herself into Ruth and Orpah. And it took root and we see it. And I think that happened over the years. And I think, to Hannah's point, God used Naomi's faithfulness and righteousness. I can't prove any of this, but it's just my sense. And yet, as they're headed home, blow now after blow after blow has come to Naomi. And the daughters-in-law the same. They've all lost their husbands. Three graves, two fresh and one a while ago. And it is just all caving in on Naomi. And she begins to say what's on her heart. And it's a broken heart. And some of you know a broken heart like that. And it seems like... And I, and I think she says, I went out full but look what God has done to me. And I think her heart was right as she went and followed her husband and didn't have any choice. Or maybe they went together but thought they were doing the right thing but were gravely mistaken and put themselves in, in jeopardy. Either way, it seems like up until these most recent deaths, she has been walking with the Lord and nurturing those daughters-in-law of her as well. She refers to him as Yahweh. She refers to him as the Almighty. Even though now bitterness has found its way into her own soul. And she is venting that. But she has been through it, hasn't she? And I think what this tells all of us is you and I might be doing just fine today but there can be a series of events that can come upon us and strip everything out from under us and we would probably respond as Naomi did. We would probably respond as Job. Not necessarily in Job 1 and 2, but in Job later chapters where he really began to say outlandish things against God and demand of God this and that and the other. So I think we'd be very tender toward Naomi in her grief and even in her blasting God. In verse 15, 
Ruth has already gone, uh, Orpah has already gone back and she appeals to Ruth, look, your, your sister-in-law has already gone back to her family and to her, finish it, to her gods. Why don't you go also? Can you help me, Naomi, why you would ever say such a thing? Moab's gods are those gods to whom they've sacrificed children. And why, Naomi, would you ever invite your daughters-in-law to return from the living God to the gods of her family? I think this is a reflection on just how under it, how despondent, how grievous her situation has been. Blow after blow after blow, tragedy, tragedy. They entered the land and it just went downhill from there. Now, at the bottom of page three, I'm gonna I'm gonna hurry along instead of discussing this. There's this word turn. You saw it in the clues. Um, there are many turns. There's this Hebrew word for turn or return or turn back or be brought back. You say it in Hebrew, shuv. It's 12 times in chapter 1 alone. And your English uh, versions are return, turn, turn back, be brought back. Why is the author, and later on, you see that bullet point says find and circle each instance of the word in those verses. I'd like you to do that sometime on your own this week and contemplate what is the author trying to help us understand by saying this word over? And in the rest of the book, it's only used three more times. But in chapter one, return, turn back, turn, turn, brought back. What is the author trying to get us to understand? And maybe we'll touch back on that next week. Um, it's powerful. I don't want you to miss that. But we're going to keep moving, okay? Page four. <clears throat> and, and some of these things we haven't covered, I invite you to tackle those in the week ahead or this afternoon, some time alone with the Lord as you're reading through the book. Um, do you see a uh, table discussion on page four? What are the statements Naomi made about the Almighty in those three texts? Would you, would you quickly... Jot those down, you and your table partners, okay? Page four. Page four, the middle of page four. Detail the statements Naomi made about the Almighty or Yahweh in 115, 120, and 121. Oh, my apologies. My page is different than yours. Sorry. Page three. Thank you for that correction. What statements the Naomi made about the Almighty, about the Lord? What did she say about the Lord in 115? Did I get that wrong? 13? My apologies. What did she say about him in 113? Thank you. Correction, 113 in your notes. Is 120 correct? Okay, and then 121. What did she say about, what did she, statement did she make about the Almighty? All right, let's recap. What did you find in 115? 113, excuse me. Talk to me. What did you say about the Almighty or the Lord in 113? The Lord's hand has turned against me. 
Yahweh, all caps, Lord means that she's using the word Yahweh. Yahweh's hand has turned against me. Okay, what about 120? The Lord has dealt bitterly. The Lord, um, here she uses Almighty, which you might know as the Hebrew name El Shaddai. El Shaddai, the Almighty, has dealt very bitterly for me, uh, uh, with me. 121, what did she say about him there? The Lord has brought me back empty. What else? The Lord, Yahweh, has testified against me. Is that the opposed me there? there? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Three, three charges against him there. And that one, the Lord has testified against me or opposed me. Um, I understand is a kind of a courtroom scene. He has, he has taken his case and testified against me in court. She's, she's, she's laying it out. Now, what? those are heavy charges against the Lord. She's saying it out of her misery and her loss and her despondency and her loss of hope and, and reason for living. What do you discern about Naomi's theology, her understanding about God from what we just talked about? What do you understand that she is, is, thinks about God and so forth? Help me out. Sandy? God's responses to her are based on her behavior. So, so, so you would say... Uh, you would say she thinks she's getting what she's she's reaping what she sowed. Maybe so. Okay. Or what her husband sowed. Or what her husband did. <laughs> he has dealt bitterly with me. There are more sheets if you're looking for them. Okay. Somebody else. What is Naomi's theology or understanding of God? She seems to have a a strong understanding of his sovereignty, like. It's it's not just a famine or or the the guys her sons didn't just die randomly. It wasn't chance. It's the Lord. The Lord is sovereign, and if He's sovereign over everything, then and she sees it as judgment. Then she sees that it directly came from Him, and in this case, she sees it. Does she use the word judgment? Well, testified against. Testified against me. That. She would definitely say he's against her, right? Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Dealt bitterly with me, testified against me, but she is very solid on her theology that God is sovereign overall. Would you agree with that? Yes. Good insight. Others? Let's talk about God's sovereignty from her perspective. What kind of sovereignty does she attribute to God? What kind of providence is God's? The way she sees it. The timing of life and death. Yeah, what the kind? timing of life and death. What do you mean now? So that God, the loss of her sons and her husband, she sees somehow that God was involved. Definitely God's involved because he's sovereign. Over it. Over it. But he chose a particular time to to bring those deaths it was bitter about for, bitter for her but by his hand and it came by his hand it was bitter for her sally 
It looks like she's looking at God's sovereignty in a negative way. Okay, a negative way to view his sovereignty. Right, like Anybody it's wanna, all against her. He's yeah. all against her, okay. Anybody want to add to that? Kind of the same philosophy as those in the New Testament who said, who sinned, this man or his parents? Ah, uh, okay. Kind of a, kind of a harsh, negative, judgmental yeah. starting point. Would you say that? Yeah. Okay. Anybody else want to add to that? <laughs> Barb says, like Job's comforters, there must be sin. Is she saying that? I don't see her saying that I've, I've sinned. I think she's attributing sovereignty to God, but. Could we say it this way? His providence is not necessarily kind. Would you agree that she's saying that? He's definitely in charge. But girls, I don't think you should come home with me because his sovereignty is dangerous. It is not at all kind toward me. In fact, it can be bitter, girls. In fact, ladies of my township, he can be bitter. She does ask for the Lord to show kindness to them for before she sends them off. Okay, the that's Lord, a bright spot. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant you or grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Yes. So she's still wishing for the Lord to do something Wishing well. God's favor on those daughters-in-law, yeah. right? And I think that speaks to, again, to the substance and the depth of Naomi and, and her walk with the Lord, that even if she's in all of this personal pain, she's saying, may the Lord Yahweh bless you. I, I agree with you on that. Other thoughts? Jeremy? John? I'm just thinking that, I think uh, for... A lot of people, when uh, for me, this is a beautiful picture of how much Naomi was this. I think a person of great faith. We see that in this what you're talking about with sovereignty, how she she saw God's hand at it, and even for her, she had these times of despair. Like, so I'm I'm kind of cautious to read too much into what her theology was, just because she cried these things out, uh -huh. because she's in. And, and that gives me comfort in a, in a way, knowing that like, even somebody like Naomi had great despair. But I also kind of wonder if she yet doesn't get the redeeming concept of God. And I kind of wonder if we don't still get the redeeming concept of God. Like even these harsher passages of that, that are hard to understand, you know, in, in Deuteronomy, God talking about no, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, none of their descendants. Like, it seems really harsh. To the 10th generation. To the 10th yeah. generation, which right. is fascinating. Which is, which is harsh, too. Because Ruth was Moabite. Right. And she did enter. And who was her descendant? Yeah. Jesus. Before exactly. the 10th generation. Yeah. So, I, I, some of these passages that are hard, I, I realize how we have to read it through the lens of a redeeming savior uh -huh. that maybe Naomi didn't even quite get yet and plays out in her story with, right. with Ruth. But clearly what God was saying there is a little hard to understand because 
Jesus himself came through Ruth's line, a Moabite. Right. Uh, so, so some of these things are tough to understand, but it gives me comfort in knowing that we do have a, a redeeming God, Excellent. which kind of plays out throughout Excellent. the story. Nice, nice pulling it together, John. So yes, can I, can I agree with you? She has a very solid view of the sovereignty of God. She has interpreted, however, that God's sovereignty is many times not very kind and can bring bitterness and hardship on a person and maybe even God himself is bitter. She doesn't yet know what is in chapter 2 and 3 and 4, does she? And is that one of the reasons this story is in here? To help all of us who are stuck in chapter 1 with our estimation of God and His not very kind sovereignty? Not necessarily very kind, would you think? Is God laying before us something of, of how we can think differently of Him? Was He teaching Naomi even allowing her to kind of go off? Was God's patience there? And that doesn't mean we just use our words casually either, does it? Don't, oh, well, Naomi did, so I can... No, careful. However, God didn't strike her for saying these things. He had a plan already in motion. And He was going to show her more about His sovereignty. And no, Naomi, it's not a bitter sovereignty in totality. But there are bitter days. I'll grant you that, I think He would have said. You agree? I want to ask you and me a question. How is it? Naomi came to these conclusions. She, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5 says, she was bereft of her two children and her husband. What did that mean? What does that mean to you and me in our day and time? If that's all you've got and now you've got nothing, it's huge. However, in a few short years in her day and time, she would have nobody to provide for her in her old age. It was way more serious in her day and time than it is ours. Her lamp had gone out. She has no progeny. Crushing, debilitating, mind-numbing loss, despair, despondency, loss of hope, and wondering how I'll have a meal when I can't get out and work myself. It is just flooding over her and she, I'm going to say it this way, she has reinterpreted the situation to reflect somewhat negatively on the Almighty. It's not, there's a whole lot of it that's accurate, like Whitney said, that God is sovereign in control. But there's a flavor of it that God is going to help her see differently, and he wrote it down so we can see differently, and all the generations since. No, that's not how. But what happens when we find ourselves in a Naomi 
chapter one of Ruth situation and everything is crashing and crashing on top of crashing and blow after blow and tragedy after tragedy, we begin to reinterpret the narrative. And who helps us reinterpret the narrative? The enemy of our soul, Satan, comes along and he flips the script and he says, and he lays a charge against God. Didn't he do that in the garden before sin had even taken root? Has God really been so unfair and unkind to you to do such and such? That's how it started, the liar, right? And he flips the script on you and me so that we reinterpret things against God in a negative way, as Sally said, about his sovereignty. We interpret that. We begin to see things stacking up as he is sovereign, but not always in a kind way. Watch out. Girls, I think it best if you don't come with me. could be really bad for y'all. The Almighty, you don't want to be around me. Look at what the Almighty is doing to me. Now, if Naomi had been complicit with Elimelech in going, leaving in the famine and going to Moab and all, she's not here saying, God, I'm sorry. I never should have agreed to that. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for that. She's not saying that. Why? Because Satan flips the script so that we look at something of an injustice done to us and we level a charge against God or to somebody. They did this to me. She, he, them. And we somehow bring to ourselves, and Satan helps us, an interpretation of life's events in such a way that a charge is laid. That's what blame is. Blame is a charge of an injustice. And we, like Naomi, do it as well. He put me in this situation. He left me in this situation. And this happened and that happened and the other. And he's so sovereign he could have done otherwise and he didn't. And therefore... And we conclude with Naomi that his sovereignty is not always kind. We need to guard ourselves, friends. I think one of the reasons this is here is for us to have a bigger view of God's sovereignty than the one where the blinders are on and we can only see this much of the story. And we can always only see this much of the story. All right? <clears throat> so what are some lessons? Is that the next set section on page four? What are some lessons? Where sin increased... Grace increased all the more, Romans 5.20. Where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. When, when we have decided God is against us, what's the lesson here? We usually exaggerate our hopelessness. She did, didn't she? When we allow our souls to become embittered, we fail to open our eyes to the clouds of mercy that are about to break with blessing on our heads. She returned at what time of the year of the calendar? The barley harvest. Food was happening right then. Could she see that? No. She was fixated on the Almighty having dealt very bitterly with her. Was that 
God's favor, though, to bring her back at a time of harvest? Yeah, she couldn't see it, though. When, when we allow our souls to become embittered, we fail to open our eyes to the clouds of mercy that are about to break with blessing on our heads. Number four, God's providence is sometimes very hard. How much further down the road do we have to see to be in order to see, to interpret correctly God's providence. Naomi had no way of knowing what God was doing and providing to her an Obed and a Jesse and a David. She had no way of knowing that. She never knew that on this life. She, her mourning has turned to joy in chapter 4, but not because she knew about David. And certainly not because she knew about the Messiah. What does that tell us, friends? It tells us that God is not obligated to tell us the whole story. Oh, well then how can I know if he did me right? You, you're right, that's the issue. So, did he do me right? Well, I don't know yet. I'll have to wait and see. You see that attitude there? And God has spelled out, even when the author wrote this book, he didn't know the Messiah piece, did he? He didn't know Matthew 1. He only knew about David. Oh, if only Naomi had known all the hardship of chapter 1, he was going to make her an ancestor of David. The author might have said to himself, well, at least I need to let my fellow countrymen knew. And for hundreds of years, that's what they knew. Naomi, Ruth, uh, and Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. What a beautiful story. But they didn't even know. Matthew 1, Messiah. What does that tell us? It tells us that we cannot fully pull in all the data to make a clear judgment about God. It comes back to, will we trust that He is good even when the circumstances say otherwise? And some of you have walked some deep waters, through some deep waters. Some of you are still in some deep waters. Some of you, those deep waters are yet ahead us. Those waters are yet ahead. And God has given us this book, this story about Naomi and Ruth, so that we can see, oh no, I had it all wrong. He was laying groundwork for me when I had nothing but the, the stormy clouds in my vision. He had made provision for there to be such a thing as a kinsman redeemer hundreds of years ago. He had made it so that there was not just one redeemer, Boaz, there was another one there in Israel. But then there's Boaz. He brought to me Ruth, whom the lady said is better to you than seven sons. What kind of, what kind of gift do you have, Naomi? Ruth, look at her. And then Obed. And then Jesse. 
So I think what the lesson for us is we should do from, with Job, cover our mouth when we are about to lay charge against God. Isn't that what God said to Job? By the way, where were you when I did this and this and this? Really? You would call me to task? Job also wanted a witness testifi testifying courtroom setting, didn't he? No, friends, we reinterpret the data. Satan helps us, our flesh helps us reinterpret the data about God wrongly. And we charge him with not just being sovereign, but unkindly sovereign. It doesn't say anywhere that Naomi ever got on her knees and said, Lord, I'm sorry for the charging you wrongly. But I have no doubt that when Naomi entered the heavenly realm and saw all of that, she said to the Almighty, to Yahweh, I cover my mouth. And God has put these words in our Bible so that we would learn and take us all to heart. There is a hymn writer, his name is William Cowper, who wrote the song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's on the green sheet there, and I would like us to sing that in a moment, but first Russ is going to share with us a little bit about the story of how that hymn came to be through William Cowper. All right. Um, I used to pronounce it Cowper, but it's oh. really... Yeah, I got to talk loud. Okay, it's pronounced Cooper oh. if you're from England, and I didn't know that for many years. So okay. just like it's Thank not you. Hugger, it's Yuji, you know, so we learn <laughs> things. Um, this hymn is considered one of the most, uh, well, the finest hymns written about God's sovereignty. Hold it up real close, they're having trouble. Okay. One of the finest hymns about the sovereignty of God. Um, Cooper lived a very difficult life. He was uh, depressed. Uh, we would call it uh, bipolar these days. And so um, his mother died when he was six. Uh, his father was a, uh, a minister, I read. Um, he became good friends with John Newton, who wrote a famous hymn that we know, Amazing Grace. Uh, and John Newton wanted to be his friend, uh, and so they were working on a hymnal together, um, and John Newton was disturbed that uh, William Cooper would uh, try to end his life by drowning, uh, and then uh, he just wanted to be the good friend. They almost stopped a hymn project uh, of putting hymns together, uh, but he remained a friend of uh, Cooper's until his death uh, in, two, in the year 1800. Um, uh, Cooper was bullied as a child, and uh, so he uh, also had uh, fear of being in front of people. He was studying to be a lawyer, and uh, he couldn't face the thought of being up in a court of law and uh, being in front of people. So he, that was when he decided to end his life, but he wasn't successful. Uh, he just wasn't able to do that. So he was committed to an insane asylum for a while in St. Albans, uh, and it was there that he came to know the Lord, and then he wrote this hymn uh, soon after that. Um, let's see. Uh, he was he was kind of eccentric. I read that he grew cu cucumbers. 
and uh, would steady himself with that. And he visited his favorite trees, and he knew certain bricks in a wall, and he was kind of disturbed, but um, he just uh, was known for his uh, spontaneous expressions, uh, the passionate responses to, to life, but he was known for uh, the uncontrollable emotion uh, he would have. Uh, but he did have patient appreciation for daily life. So he speaks about dark things in this hymn, clouds and the storm, and you can almost read a little bit into his mindset as you go through the stanzas on this hymn. All right. Thank you. Let's sing this together. And um, contemplate a Naomi, a William Cooper, and yourself in these words. All right, together. Let's move a little faster. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, folding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Bind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Do any lines stand out to you? Or did any of them strike you as they did me? That Ruth could well have said them? Behind a frowning providence. But that's all she saw. She didn't see a smiling face behind the frowning providence, did she? We are tempted to do the same when we interpret our circumstances apart from what God has revealed about himself. Any others? The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. What does that mean, Christina? Uh, the uh, I'm thinking of a hibiscus. I work a lot with that at work. Um, 
if I chose to pick a hibiscus before it bloomed, it would be very bitter. Uh, a hibiscus is actually quite sweet to the taste, so it, it needs that time to ripen and bloom. It needs that time to grow and be all that God designed it to be. So in the case of events unfolding, how, how was he trying to tell us something here about the bud? Um, what we see now in our life might be hard, bitter, mm. chewy. Um, and yet when we, even in 10 years or in the next life, we will have a more full picture. Yeah. And then we will certainly see not just that the bud was bitter, but the flower was sweet. We'll have mm -hmm. a better understanding. What else? Blind unbelief is sure to err. Well, I wouldn't characterize myself as blind unbelief, would you? No, I just was... Well, isn't that what it is? When I look at what God's done and I attribute injustice to Him? It is blind unbelief, isn't it? It's, it's dangerous. And I'm going to scan His work in vain with that attitude. Did God stop the whole book of Ruth after she said those things in chapter 1 and say, no, 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 let me get you straightened out on this point. No. But in time, he made it plain, and we're the beneficiaries of that. And we do well to take those to heart, don't we? He doesn't intend for himself to have gone to all of the work that he did in Ruth and with Naomi and Boaz and all of that, to have to do that in every lifetime. No, he did it then. And we are charged with the responsibility to learn from those. Well, that is more... Uh, I'd encourage you to think often on this hymn during this series. Um, <clears throat> number... Number... Um, Number five, when it seems that God is farthest from us or has turned against us, He is actually laying foundations for redemption and unparalleled blessing upon our return. You and I, now let me, let me interject this, you and I know people who have walked away from the Lord. Are unparalleled blessings awaiting them? I said, unparalleled blessings await them upon their return. I think that's one of the reasons we see turn and return and turn and turn back so often in chapter 1. Unparalleled blessings await those who return to the Lord. When it seems God is farthest from us or has turned against us, He is actually laying foundations for redemption. Redemption. He's going to redeem these three fresh graves in Moab. He's going to redeem these losses. He's going to redeem the hardship and the pain. Yes. 
God is actually laying, when it seems he's farthest from us or has turned against us, he is actually laying foundations and has laid foundations already for us for redemption and unparalleled blessing upon our return. Now, if I could... I want to say it this way. God's heart, as evidenced in the book of Ruth, is this. To gather the calamities and the crucibles of our lives and include them by His exceedingly kind providence in the most glorious story ever, the story of redemption. Let me say that again. God's heart toward Ruth God's heart toward, let me start with Naomi, God's heart toward Naomi and every one of you and me in here is to gather the calamities and he didn't just say the calamities that aren't sin originated. To gather the calamities. Okay, you're in Moab. What are you doing in Moab? Why are you in? He didn't say that. He said... God's heart toward us is to gather the calamities and the crucibles of our lives and include them by his exceedingly kind providence in the most, gracious, most glorious story ever, the story of redemption. And he laid down redemption over and over in this book. But that was little r redemption. Big r redemption is yet ahead. And God's heart toward you and me is to gather the calamities and crucibles of our lives and include them in His exceedingly kind providence in the most glorious story ever, the story of redemption. Have you ever... I meant to do this differently. Let me see if I can do it this way. Have you ever seen this little game? You got four dots, and the, the, the game is, the challenge is to connect the dots with one line without ever, without ever lifting your pen. You ever seen that game? Yeah? So everybody knows what, where I'm going with this. You can't do it on this sheet of paper, can you? But if you take this line and you go all the way out here and don't lift your pen and come back, you can make an arrow shape and you just solved it. What's the problem? Our, our box is not big enough. The story of Ruth continued out here. The author of Ruth said, Oh, Naomi, if you had only seen, if you had only seen, Naomi, that God was gathering the calamities and crucibles of your life and including them in, by His exceedingly kind providence in the most glorious story ever, the story of the king, the most the king of David. That's what he probably would have said. But he was wrong too. Because the story had to go all the way out here off the page. And there was the cross. Now we see what God was doing. He was gathering the calamities and crucibles of Naomi's life. He gathers the crucibles and calamities of our life. And they all extend out here, not to King David, but to the cross, our Lord.
and he, he includes us by that in the grandest story of all, the story of redemption. How exceedingly kind of the Lord to gather the calamities and crucibles of Naomi and Ruth and redeem them by including them not just in the lineage of David, but in the lineage of the Messiah. How did God do that? By allowing His Son to be our kinsman redeemer. He Himself, the Lord Jesus Himself, gathers all of our calamities and our crucibles, the ones we brought on ourselves by sojourning in Moab, if that's what we did. He endures our misinterpretations of His providence, where we call Him unkind, harsh against us. He patiently, lovingly restrains Himself when we blame Him and charge Him with injustice. And by His exceedingly kind providence, listen to these words, by His exceedingly kind providence, He bore our griefs, our sorrows He carried. Are you hearing that, Naomi? He was smitten of God, Naomi, and afflicted. He was pierced through for your transgressions, Naomi and Paul and your name. The chastisement for our well-being fell on Him. If there was ever an injustice, this was it, Naomi. We've all turned our own way. But God has caused the iniquity of us all not to keep us from Him, Naomi. That's not a frowning providence. He's frowning, he, he did the frowning providence on the Savior on the cross so that you could enjoy His smile. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. But He didn't open His mouth as you did, Naomi, or as you and I are tempted to do when it seems so unjust and unfair. He was silent before his oppressors. He didn't open his mouth. Oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off from the land of the living. Naomi, you see that you're going to be cut off because you have no one to take care of you. No, that was the Savior who was cut off for you so that he could bring redemption. Little our redemption at first, but ultimately big our redemption. His grave. Oh, it just goes on and on. The Lord was pleased to bruise him, Naomi, not you. For your injustice, for your lashing out, for your Moab journey, sojourn. No, he, he, he bruised him. Are you feeling that, friend? Are you feeling it with me? That he did that for you too? And all the times we have been out of line and misjudged him and said he's an unkind sovereign. Hey, look what he's done to me. By his exceedingly kind providence, he took them all 
our griefs, our sorrows, our punishments on Himself. This story is given to us to unfold for us the idea of kinsman redeemer in part more would come later but also so that we would so to increase our trust in his kind providence and redemption his so when the enemy whispers in your ear and mine that he's being unjust that's a lie call it that say no i don't know how it's going to work out i don't know how this is going to resolve it might not while I'm still alive, but I do trust him. It says it right here that he's trustworthy. Let's take our green sheets. Uh, no, let's wait on that. Let's take the emblems of the Lord's bearing our offenses and worship him, shall we? Lord, we take now the bread and the cup. We are unworthy. And we don't mind saying it to you, confessing it to you, that we're unworthy of all that you've done for us in spite of all that we have done against you. Even after we came to know you, we have leveled charges against you, misspoke about your character, said untrue things, thought untrue things, charged you with... We're sorry. And we confess it again and we reaffirm what we've taught, learned this morning that you are trustworthy and you are good and it is kind even if our sight says otherwise, even if the enemy whispers otherwise. And we choose to humble ourselves before you and receive now the proof in all of its glory of your kind providence to us by the death of your Son his body broken, his blood poured out. Hear now our thank yous as we whisper them to you in our hearts. Amen. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you, my one defense. My righteousness, oh God, how I need you. We'll pass the offering plate. That's just a, an opportunity to say thank you to him. But certainly one of the least ways to say thank you, isn't it? So I want to... Uh, close with some of the things I wrote in my journal <clears throat> in response to Ruth chapter 1. Lord, 
Am I scrupulously careful in my obedience to you? It doesn't appear to me that Elimelech was. It wouldn't have taken him much time to understand what you thought about them going to Moab. Am I scrupulously careful in my obedience to you? Am I charging you, God, with injustice? Naomi did. When I blame someone or when I blame you, I am saying an injustice was done to me. I was not fully at fault. Am I charging ultimately you with injustice? Am I charging you with injustice in the hearing of others, Father? Naomi did. She charged you with justice to Orpah and Ruth. She impugned your character. Am I doing that? When everything caves in on my life, is my first question, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? I know that every crisis is not you trying to get my attention. I know that from Job. However, I at least owe you to transparently ask you, Lord, are you trying to get my attention? Is there something I'm missing? Have I, have I not been listening? I am now. Have I reinterpreted the narrative of the events of my life? Have I spun that narrative, Lord? In my grief and bitterness of soul, have I told an Orpah or a Ruth to go back and serve other gods? That you will get them like you're getting me? Have I... been the occasion for someone else to turn back from the living God? Am I seeing, Lord, your gracious kindness even in the pain? Or do I fail to see that there's word about food back home because my pain is so great? I fail to see the Ruths in my life. I fail to see that it's barley harvest that there is a harvest. Lord, has everything caved in on some, someone near me? Have I learned from Ruth how to be silent? Just be silent. To allow them to pour out their grief even if they charge you unjustly. Lord, have I had an experience with the living God like Ruth did? that leads me to turn my back on every false god of my past and declare Yahweh shall be my God even if it kills me? Well, yes, I have, but have I continued in that vein that absolutely nothing will deter me in my devotion to you? Lord, I thank you for these very difficult words by which you intend to impart life to us and deeper knowledge of yourself. And we do love you. And we thank you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.